This is day five of this July 2023 seven-day session, and I'll return to uh, our text from yesterday, which is an anthology, a collection of uh, different uh, short um, pieces by the, some of the greatest of the, especially the Tang Dynasty masters, Chinese masters. The book is called Zen Essence, and it's translated and edited by Thomas Cleary. Zen students today, oh, this is, uh, this is Master, Master Linji. Zen students today are totally unaware of truth. You could say that they're yet to experience the essential, the essential formlessness of form, the, the, the no-thingness of the world of, the world of thingness. They are like foraging goats that pick up whatever they bump into. They do not distinguish between the servant and the master or between the guest and the host. Meaning, this is ninth century language, meaning distinguish between uh, the essential mind and the ordinary mind. Uh, you might say uh, the, the, the mind of phenomena uh, everything that comes and goes, emotions, feelings, thoughts, and so forth, uh, between that and that which is beyond phenomena. People like this enter Zen with distorted minds and are unable to enter effectively into dynamic situations. It is, uh, I would see that as not able to function in... Um, yeah, complicated circumstances, things as they ch are changing. They may be called true initiates, but actually they are really mundane people. Those who really leave attachments must master real, true perception to distinguish the enlightened from the obsessed, the genuine from the artificial, the unregenerate from the sage. And he says, professional Buddhist clergy who cannot tell obsession from enlightenment have just left one social group and entered another social group. They cannot really be said to be independent. Uh, the translator, Thomas Cleary, when he says professional B Buddhist clergy, this was I'm sure that uh, originally this was monks, celibate monks. Um, the translator 
broadened it to uh, monks and priests who can marry. But he said these those who cannot tell obsession, um, a fixation, I would say, my understanding, well, one understanding of the word obsession here is it's a fixation on uh, right and wrong, on, on, uh, on uh, structure, having uh, uh, everything in place according to rules and, and um, having a, a, a very simple life where everything is ordered and you have a nice hierarchy you can rely on. There is, there is among more than a few uh, Zen priests I've, I've met, there is an element of uh, obsessiveness, of uh, fussiness about detail and um, getting, doing things the right way, which usually means just the way they're used to, the way their particular school. And this is very... Pointed, and they've just left one social group and entered another social group. The social group of a of a temple or a monastery or a Zen center uh, is very much a little um, well social group. It doesn't it has the promise of being much more than a social group, uh, but there is that danger of a. a Cultism. There's a saying in Mexico, a small town, big hell. And uh, I think a lot of people who've spent time in monasteries, temples, can really appreciate this, is the kind of snarled um, social interactions that can uh, crop up when people who are living in very close quarters and they're rubbing up against one another. There's great, there is great uh, potential for living in close quarters like that and, and sharing a, uh, the same aspiration. And, and inevitably, there will be friction. And then one can work with that in Zen, there is the uh, analogy of uh, uh, river stones that be- become uh, very, very smooth uh, from uh, being tumbling over one another and and uh, becoming smoothed out that way. Well, that's the that's the the promise of living close together as we have our our sharp edges and our rough corners sanded down. And he says, now there is an obsession with Buddhism that is mixed in with the real thing. Those with clear eyes cut through both obsession and Buddhism. In other words, cutting through the attachment to Buddhism as a label. We mentioned that yesterday about labels and how dangerous they are, uh, 
if we become attached to them and we make them part of our identity. And then he says, if, if you love the sacred and despise the ordinary, you are still bobbing in the ocean of delusion. Zen very much admires the ordinary. There's a famous famous uh, admonition in, in Zen, just be ordinary. Which means be yourself. Nothing nothing need be sacred. When we see through these two these distinctions, then uh, the ordinary is the sacred. The sacred is the ordinary. Here's another little entry. Uh, Lin Chi says there are blind baldies who, after they have eaten their fill, do zazen and practice meditation, shunning clamor and seeking quiet. This is a deviated form of zen. It is to reject the world of activity and uh, want to withdraw into a nice uh, controlled environment where everything is is quiet and sublime. We want to be. We don't want to rely on on the environment, the conditions that we create, uh, to appreciate the the stillness at the heart of everything. There's a famous words of uh, Chinese master Yong Chia said, those who cling to vacancy, neglecting the world of things, escape drowning, but leap into the fire. There's nothing we want to reject. That's why I think it's, it's somewhat similar as to why we keep the eyes open in Zen practice. We're not trying to close off close ourselves off from the world trying to to become one with the world and overcome these these divisions of the inner and the outer the private and the public it's a it's a pretty pretty um, tenuous uh, state to be able to quiet the mind as long as your eyes are closed. Uh, and you just invite drowsiness with the eyes closed. So going back centuries and centuries, the, the instructions, the method in Zen has been to keep the eyes open. The eyes are out of focus. You're not taking in, you're not visually watching things with the eyes open, you're really not seeing much of anything. Um, but at least they're open, so you are partaking of the world around you and not rejecting it, not uh, slinking in to, to uh, 
try to shut out the world. Then she said, the six supernormal faculties of the enlightened. And uh, this is a phrase, this is a category that I guess was out there um, in uh, in China. The six supernormal faculties, I I don't even care enough to to cite them. You know, the different kinds of paranormal uh, abilities, psychic powers and all. But he, Zen has never put much stock in psychic ability. Um, so what Lynchy says is here, the six supernormal faculties of the enlightened are the ability to enter the realm of form, to enter the realm of form without being confused by form, to enter the realm of sound without being confused by sound, to enter the realm of scent, fragrance without being confused by scent, to enter the realm of flavor without being confused by flavor, to enter the realm of feeling without being confused by feeling, and to enter the realm of phenomena without being confused by phenomena. And how how do we avoid being confused by these senses, these sense experiences, well, ultimately by seeing the emptiness, the non-substantiality of them all. Uh, this, this word emptiness, uh, it's not, we can understand it in uh, more than one way, but here I think what would be especially suitable here is uh, to see it as, as a form of impermanence, uh, or rather impermanence as a form of emptiness, that when we hear a sound, uh, we know the sound is not going to continue forever. Same with uh, smell, taste, feeling, any phenomena, form physical form, what isn't subject to decay, to impermanence. But when he says the the enlightened, the six supernormal faculties of the enlightened, this goes beyond just as a kind of reminder, oh, there's a, there's a sound of a helicopter uh, Oh yeah, it's impermanent. It won't be around forever. It'll. It's. It's nothing conscious like that. It's nothing um, that requires self-talk. It's just through the experience of of seeing into the formlessness of form. Again, the the no thingness of this world of thingness. Uh, to having experienced that uh, oneself, then there is there is less attachment, I'd say less, less attachment to these sense experiences. <coughs> and, uh, and, and, and so less confusion, less, less bondage to the senses. And 
We, we, we go through this in, in Sashin, also outside Sashin, but especially in Sashin, with pain. Pain is a feeling. He mentions feeling here. to enter the realm of feeling without being confused by feeling. So we're in pain, and uh, what we discover is that pain passes sooner or later. And if we're not dwelling in our thoughts about the pain, then it's not a big problem. And how do we avoid dwelling in our thoughts about the pain? Through absorption in the practice we're working on. We don't have to think, all right, don't be thinking about the pain. No, we just go to the practice. Moo, breath, what is this? Who am I? Here's a very short one. Lynchy says, I have no doctrine to give people. I just cure ailments and unlock fetters. In uh, books about Buddhism and, and Zen, uh, you'll come across statements that about the Buddha's refusal to state how things are out there. How things are, what is, what is, the nature of things. It's more practical than that. He he directed us to see for ourselves how things are, not to come up with a doctrine. Sometimes at introductory workshops, I've heard the question, why are we deluded? Uh, where, where does our ignorance come from? And, um, well, I'm, yeah, there are surely books that have gone into that, but from a Zen, not just Buddhism, but a, a Zen point of view, it doesn't matter where it came from. It's, we got a problem with our delusion. And how do you resolve a problem? And that's what we focus on, the practical, the method. Buddha was, uh, was, uh, was sometimes called the great physician. Uh, just looking at the illness, the illness of, of uh, suffering, and then going from there, recognizing that Suffering ultimately comes from egoistic attachment and delusion. Uh, that there is a way out of that. And that the way is, for those of us practicing Zen, is the way is to non-attachment to our thoughts.
<clears throat> this is uh, a Zen master, Yangshan. And uh, he he's talking about distinguishing between the root and the branches. Just get the root. Don't worry about the branches. For someday you will come to have them naturally. The branches, as we said earlier in Sashin, and I think it's worth repeating, is all the stuff that goes along with our tradition. Uh, the... Uh, the ceremonies, the rituals, the bowing, even Taisho, wearing robes. Sashin itself is, you could say, as a structure, is the branches. The root is beyond all of these things. The root is seeing the non-substantiality of all these things. doesn't mean rejecting these leaves and branches. There's, there's no healthy tree without leaves and branches, but the emphasis in Zen is seeing the source of all this, the source of mind. Leaves and branches would also, um, among those would be psychic powers, uh, even more subtle things like calmness. Yeah, calmness is good. It's not the root. Energy, strong energy, joriki, a uh, refined personality, more branches. And there's all the, is the whole matter of Buddhist philosophy and psychology, the sutras themselves, leaves and branches. Since the time of Bodhidharma in the 6th century, Zen has been known the teaching beyond words without reliance on the sutras. And so then he says, if you have not attained the basis or the root, even if you consciously study, you cannot attain the outgrowths either. I've come to feel that uh, one can't really understand the real essence of the sutras until having had a breakthrough, having seen into the formlessness of form having seen through form, seen through words. It can, it can inspire one. It can, it can help, as any leaves and branches can help. But uh, you can't really get the gist of it, the, the, the essence of the Buddha's words. 
without having experienced to some even to a small degree what he experienced he goes on you should turn your attention within don't memorize my words you know in uh, in china certainly in the time of the Tang Dynasty, the Sung Dynasty, and prob- maybe even today, I don't know, uh, there was great, great um, appreciation of memorizing, learning the words of, of the masters, one's ancestors. It's part of the, uh, the worship of ancestors. I think I mentioned this a couple of days ago in Taisho, how it became... A, a, a problem, uh, as, as the masters understood it, when their students felt that it was a substitute for the, re, the direct experience to memorize, or memorize koans. And here, this Yangshan is reminding us, don't memorize my words. I say the same about Taisho. I really don't want people to be thinking about what I say in Taisho afterward. You really have to just let it go and trust that that uh, it's all it's all going in somewhere. You're you're absorbing it somehow, and you don't have to hold it into your conscious mind. When Taisho ends, it's over. It's no longer the present. We want to always be present. It doesn't mean that some things that I read from here don't spring to mind while you're sitting. Some of these things can, can be inspirational, but not to try to hold on to them. Very different from uh, so much of Buddhism before Zen which was to study and memorize. Don't memorize my words. You've been turning from light to darkness since before you can remember, so the roots of your subjective ideas are deep and hard to uproot all at once. Strictly speaking, we could say that that uh, fleeing into into words is from direct experience is turning from the light into darkness. What is here now, our direct experience, uh, is complete. wonder how many how many of you have had the experience I have of right after coming out of a seven day session uh, reading something even something about Zen how uh, I'll just say my own experience how tasteless it is to see compared to what we've been doing here day after day is just could be completely present wide open to direct experience, and then you see these little ink scribbles on a piece of paper. It's so 
flat and beside the point. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't last long. Then I can, you know, later, after more time has passed, after Sashin, it's, it's different. But right away, uh, it's just uh, casting a kind of a gray, uh, a grayness to, to things. Maybe it's just me. Maybe other people, right after Sashin, can open a book, especially a book about the Dharma and and be uh, really inspired. Now we're going on to another famous master, Fayen, um, 9th to 10th century, China, of course. He says, The purpose of Zen is to enable people to immediately transcend the ordinary and the holy, just getting people to awaken on their own, forever cutting off the root of doubt. root of doubt. Awakening is the only way to really get free of doubt. To, to the degree of the awakening doesn't mean you can't have doubts after awakening, but you see them differently. You see them for what they are. They're just thoughts. Thoughts. Pfft. Thoughts. There is, you can't have a doubt except as a thought. It's a good thing to remember because um, as we go on in, in this deeper uh, section of Sashin, um, a, a doubt can suddenly roar up and uh, really uh, derail one if you pay attention to it. It's, it must be clear that if you have a doubt about yourself, your ability, a doubt about the teaching, about the teacher, whatever doubt you may have is a thought. We have no truck with thoughts in Zen. Shake it off. Redirect your attention to what is beyond doubt. Many people in modern times disregard this. They may join Zen groups, but they are lazy about Zen practice. Without having understood senses and objects, as soon as they possess themselves of some false interpretation, they become captivated by it and lose the correct basis completely. 
They are only interested in becoming leaders and being known as teachers. While they, va they value an empty reputation in the world, that is why they, uh, even as they crave to be famous, they bring ill on themselves. Not only do they make their successors blind and deaf, they also cause the influence of Zen to degenerate. I have to go back to this uh, this matter of doubt. You know, in, in, in Zen, often when we say doubt, we mean uh, questioning. Uh, but this is this is the uh, corrosive kind of doubt. We just don't quite believe the teaching. And. Uh, this is where we can employ, especially at this stage of Sashim, we can start um, shifting into more of a do-it-yourself mode rather than bringing everything to the teacher in Doksan. I'm aware that with this, this many people in Sashin, I feel I need to start moving things along more in Doksan. So if you, if you have the thought that you're, you're not capable of this practice, you're not capable of coming away, you don't need to bring that to me. Come on. See it as a thought. Nothing but a thought. Shake it off. We just have to start to narrow the parameters of what what is necessary for Doksan with this many people. It's just more at stake now than there was three days ago. Now, uh, awakening is within reach of everyone. And uh, as much as I would like to chat in Doksan, and I would, I think this is something that uh, I've noticed as I've aged is just the pleasure of chatting with my students but I can't do that in Sashin this is a do-it-yourself practice there are things that the teacher can help with uh, and so yes, do come to Doksan, but uh, consider whether it's really necessary to show up to hear what you already know. Next uh, section by Fayen. Zen is not founded or sustained on the premise that there is a doctrine to be transmitted. So this is echoing what uh, Lynchy said just, uh, uh, earlier in this Taisho. 
Now I could hear people say, wait a minute, uh, we do hear Buddhist doctrine from time to time in, uh, in Sashin. Uh, the doctrine of impermanence, for example, of no self. But it's always understood that, that one has to has to experience that for oneself. It's by by itself as a doctrine. Uh, it's it's not not much value to it. And as he says, he says it is just a matter of direct guidance to the human mind. the perception of its essence and achievement of awakening. So there's something, for example, very distinctly Zen about Joshu's, Zhao Zhou's reply uh, when he's asked, is there, any, is there any teaching in the distant mountains where no one is present? And he said, large rocks are large, small rocks are small. Grass is green. Crows are black. What doctrine is there in those statements? Yes, doctrine has its place, but the direct experience always comes first. The direct experience confirms the doctrine. And then he, he warns about uh, different, different sectarian styles. He says, there were differences in the modes of teaching set up by later Zen teachers, and there were both tradition and change. Tradition and Transition is the title of a very, very good book by uh, the late Ken Kraft, member, uh, who was a member here for many years. The methods employed by a number of famous Zen masters came to be continued as traditions, or you could say as lineages, to the point where their descendants became sectarians and did not get to the original reality. Eventually, they made many digressions, contradicting and attacking each other. They do not distinguish the profound from the superficial and do not know that the great way has no sides and the streams of truth have the same flavor. Such a human, human tendency to break into divisions, which, which is all right in itself. Uh, we have different religions in the world because people are of different temperaments and different religions appeal uh, differently to different people. And the same within a, within a, uh, a religion, Zen, let's say, a practice like Zen. There are different uh, emphases, different styles, that some of which can appeal to some people more than others. But the key thing here that Fayan is talking about is not to mistake uh, the differences from that which is beyond difference, the original. 
the essence. There's a story that uh, told by uh, one of the uh, original um, American Vipassana teachers. Uh, uh, maybe it was in a, a book that they co-authored, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield, uh, about uh, a master uh, who um, ordered his, his, his disciples to tie up a cat that was getting in the way and disrupting things and uh, put it on a leash and um, and then as time passed this became a sacred part of the tradition yes yes we must tie up the cat find a cat to tie up I don't know much about the Judeo-Christian tradition but I've heard there's a lot of that in there are a lot of old old, old stuff that has been clung to just because it was done 2,000 years ago. Old um, rituals that make no sense today. One more here, short. Zen teachers need first to distinguish false and true then they must clearly understand the time. There's a lot packed in that one sentence. Distinguishing the false from the true. Uh, we touched on this earlier. The, uh, who was it? Uh, distinguishing between uh, the, the essential and uh, the uh, temporal, but what is pass passing. Host and guest. That's right, host and guest. Host, of course, being that which is, is unchanging, the eternal, and guest being that which is uh, conventional. And that's where he warns they must first distinguish false and true, then they must clearly understand the time. In other words, adapt the essence of the teaching to the time and the place. Accommodating the essence. Well, the essence is nothing. No thingness. So as long as we place that as the priority, then it doesn't matter so much what the form is it, within limits. Uh, the sitting posture is not the essence. It's just a posture. But it's worth preserving because it reveals more easily than any other posture, it reveals the essence. Not so the use of chopsticks there are, there are plenty of Zen centers that I respect uh, that insist on using orioki, it's called the nesting bowls and chopsticks. Uh, really, do we need to import that? 
it does have a wonderful simplicity to it. I know having uh, used Orioki for six months in Japan, it's all very nifty and and uh, all it's, it's, it's beautiful in its own way. But uh, it, it can be uh, another barrier for beginners um, who face enough barriers in Zen, learning the culture. What's wrong with plates and bowls and spoons and forks and knives? We wouldn't expect the, the Japanese or the Chinese to switch to uh, plates and spoons and forks and so forth. Chopsticks is what they use. They've always used. This is, uh, this is such a peripheral thing. All right, our time is up, so we'll stop and recite the four vows.